I must say that I, uh, I feel a little uh, the way Mr. Washington feels about public speaking. I'm more comfortable when I'm writing. I suppose I feel a little bit uh, the way Jaja Gabor's seventh husband must have felt on his honeymoon night. <laughs> I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just not sure I can make it entertaining. so far have all been either famous or wealthy or both, and all of them successful. These statistics will tell you students that the odds are against you being any of those things because very few people are successful, famous, and rich. So what you do is very simple. You forget those odds, and you forget the statistics. And you find out what you want to do, and you do it. The important thing, I think, is to know who you are and what you want. They have had surveys on what makes people successful, what that common thread is. And invariably, the number one factor turns out to be the people who are successful love what they're doing. There are no time clocks. And I think when you give more of yourself than is expected, there's no way you're not going to the top. Let's take a simple category of a secretary. Let's say you're an executive and you have two secretaries in your office. One of them watches the clock, leaves at 6 o'clock, comes in in the morning when she's supposed to, does her job. The other one is interested in helping you, doesn't look at the clock, stays later, comes in earlier. That's the one that's going someplace, and you can apply that to any profession. I think that when you love what you're doing, this is automatic. You don't look at clocks. And it's wonderful to be working at what you love. And unfortunately, I think the majority of the people in the world are trapped in jobs that they hate. Their lives are nothing more than marking time. They're in a job because it was a summer job and it became easy to stay with it later or because their father owned a certain business and they stayed with that business, but they're not satisfied. So the trick is to find out what satisfies you and go after it. I've been extraordinarily lucky in my career. I got out of school during the Depression in the 30s, and there were no jobs. I wanted to be a writer, and I had never met a writer. My father, I think until the day of his death, never read a book. Neither of my parents went past third grade. I was the first one in my family to go to high school, and I had one year at Northwestern. I had to leave because there was no money in the family, and I had to go to work. Meanwhile, I had done a lot of jobs. I worked right across the street at what was then the Stevens Hotel, hanging hats and coats. 
I would go there after school, and when there was a party at the hotel, I would work. I worked in a factory in Chicago called Stuart Warner. I was making about $15 a week, and I remember on Christmas, the foreman called me in, and he said, I'm going to give you a raise. He gave me a raise of $1, and he said, now, for God's sakes, try to earn this. Those were not wonderful times. I, I decided when, when I was hanging hats and coats at the Bismarck Hotel, I wrote a song. And we had a wonderful orchestra leader playing at the hotel. Those were the days of the big bands, before television, really. His name was Phil Levant. And as he passed the check room one evening, I asked him if he would take a look at the song. And he did, and he came back to me and said, I'd like to play it. So from then on, every night, from around the corner in the big ballroom, while I was hanging hats and coats, I heard my song being played. And that was quite a thrill. And I naturally decided that I was the next Irving Berlin. I was then 17 years old. I got permission from my parents to go to New York on my own and become a songwriter. And in order to support myself, I worked as an usher at the RKO Jefferson in New York. And I would sit in the theater after the show started and watch all this magic on the screen. I'd see Fred Astaire and Judy Garland and Cary Grant and these wonderful musicals by Irving Berlin and Bing Crosby. And it was really a magical time for me just watching them. And at the same time, I was very frustrated because I wanted to be a part of that. And I didn't know how. And within 10 years, I was directing Cary Grant in the movie and writing for Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire and Judy Garland. And talk about wishes being fulfilled. That was it for me. It was wonderful. And the way I started was to go to Hollywood when I decided I wanted to write screenplays. And when I couldn't get into the studios and couldn't talk to anyone, I heard about readers, people who synopsized scripts for busy producers. And I sat down and wrote a synopsis of, of Mice and Men. And I sent a copy to every studio. Within two days, I was working as a reader at $17 a week. And that was the Trojan horse that I used to get into Hollywood. I'm sure you all know the story of the Greeks who built a Trojan horse when they couldn't get in the gates of the city, filled it with soldiers. And once they got inside, the soldiers jumped out and conquered the city. You have to find a way to accomplish what you want to do. Don't let people say no to you and stop you from what you want to do. You find a way around it. Being a reader was my way to get inside a studio. And the next step was to get up at 4 o'clock every morning and write original stories. I wrote five of them without selling any. The next one sold, and then the other sold. And I was a screenwriter. I was 18 years old. And I must tell you, the entire budget on the first movie that I wrote was $100,000. You can't do that today. At any rate, once I, I started, it became a lot easier. That first credit was the hard one to get. And when the war came along, I enlisted in the Air Force, and I finished primary school. And while I was waiting to get into secondary flying school, I was back in New York, and I wrote three Broadway plays.
came to Hollywood, I wrote an original called Suddenly It's Spring, sold it to David Selznick, who changed the title to The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. And I, who was fairly new at the business, told Mr. Selznick, who was not new at the business and who produced pictures like Gone with the Wind, that the title would never work and would keep people out of the theaters. I got an Oscar for the picture, made a lot of money, and I was wrong. When I first went to Metro, there were 125 writers under contract. Wonderful writers. Bob Nathan, Dorothy Parker, Benchley. And I was told by some of the writers not to break my neck, because what the studio expected was for a writer to produce something that would be shot. One picture every three years would be fine. And I didn't believe that. And every script that I wrote was made into a movie. I went there on a two-week guarantee, and I left 12 years later as a writer, producer, director. I was fortunate in working with the most wonderful people. Those days are gone now, but we had Gable and Norma Shearer and Garbo, Crosby. They were, they were wonderful to work with. I, I remember I got called one day down to the set on the first day of shooting of Easter Parade. And I was talking to Judy Garland, telling her a story. And the assistant director came over. And he said, we're ready for you, Miss Garland. And I started to get up, and she said, no, finish the story. So I went on, and I started talking faster, because it's very expensive to keep a shooting set waiting. And finally, I said, Judy, I'll, I'll tell you the story later. She said, no, finish it now. And I said, what's the matter? Don't you want to shoot this scene? And she said, no. And I said, why? And she said, well, in this scene, I have to kiss Mr. Astaire, and I've never met him. So I took Judy by the hand and led her over to Fred and introduced him, and it went on fine. And a, a couple of days later, Arthur Freed, the producer of the picture, called me over and asked me to come down. He said, Fred wanted to talk to me. So he took me over to a corner, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, the scene we're about to shoot, I'm very mean to Ann Miller, and I wonder if you could soften it. And I said, Fred, in this picture, you two are a team. And you've been offered a Broadway show without her, and you turned it down. She's just been offered a show without you. And she grabbed it. Of course, you're furious with her. And he said, I know that, but I, I really can't be rough with her. Would you just soften it? And I said, look at it this way. You're not being rough with who the character is. And he clapped me on the back, and he said, you're absolutely right. He said, now, would you rewrite the scene for me? I did. Anyway, I, I got into television, and um, I wasn't going to get into television because when you did motion pictures, we people in pictures looked down on anyone in television. It was the poor cousin. But my agent asked me if I would meet with Patty Duke, and we had lunch, and I fell in love with her. She was about 14 and hungry for love. She had had a terrible life. And I agreed to create a show for her. It was bought by ABC. And because I didn't know that it couldn't be done, 
I said I would only do the show if I could write every script. And in those days, it was 39 scripts. And they agreed. And I found out later they immediately hired three writers to do three scripts. So when I came to them and said, I don't have a show for next week, they could say, here's the script. We never used those scripts. I wrote every script of that show for the first two years. And while I was writing it, Columbia asked me if I would create a show for them, and I created I Dream of Genie. I produced the show, and I wrote all those scripts for five years. So I was doing both shows simultaneously, only because I, I didn't know that couldn't be done. It had never been done before. The point is, don't set any limits for yourself. You can do anything that you want to do, and the only one who can ever stop you is yourself. So find that Trojan horse and go for it. Thank you.